So welcome back again into this space and uh, the end of our first day of practice together. You made it. So how are you? How are you, you all doing? How is the mind right now? Some of you may be feeling quite relaxed and uh, feeling like it's all going swimmingly. Maybe some of you, it's been feeling like more of a struggle. And, uh, you know, we can get to the end of the day and think, oh, the Dharma talk, what a relief. I can, uh, yeah, it's a bit like switching on the TV at the end of the day. Somebody's going to take my mind off the the dukkha. Uh, Or perhaps, you know, we're kind of really into the silence and we don't want to be disturbed. So, or, or we're kind of longing for some more information about what we should be doing. So all different things can be coming to mind. But again, it's just uh, another continuation of the practice, really. Um, so it may be that you, you find that you, to bring yourself into balance, you need to relax a little bit. Or it may be that you, you, know, you want to continue bringing some alertness to what you're doing. It's a constant practice of uh, finding our way to, to balance things. But um, I was, there's something that I wanted to share from, uh, these are similes from Ajahn Chah, who was the teacher of Kittisara and Tanisara, and also of Ajahn Sumedho, who was my, my main teacher, and Jack Cornfield. And Ajahn Chah was a very down-to-earth uh, monk in northeastern Thailand, and uh, this is what he had to say about listening to Dharma talks. Because you can be very concerned that you need, you need to get a lot of information down. Sometimes people worry about should I be taking notes and so on. So Ajahn Chah said, "If listening to Dharma makes your heart peaceful, that's good enough. You don't need to make an effort to remember anything." Some of you may not believe this, but if your heart is peaceful and you just listen to what's being said, letting it pass by while contemplating continuously, then you'll be like a tape recorder. After some time, when you turn on, everything will be there. Have no fear that there won't be anything. As soon as you turn on your tape recorder, everything will be there. So you can just uh, trust that the bits that you need to go in will go in and the rest will flow on by. So So I wanted to talk this evening um, a bit about uh, this mind that we're meditating with um, and one way that we can see it, which is... uh, the, med- the meditating mind actually is a, a combination of five faculties coming together, which are known as the five spiritual faculties. And these are faith, which we've already spoken quite a lot about, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And these are faculties of the mind that, when developed, uh, become powers or strengths and today you've kind of got familiar with seeing all of us sitting up here and we're we're your kind of external team that are guiding your retreat 
but there's also this internal team that you have of these five faculties and they're your your allies in the practice and it's good to get to know them because unlike us they'll be with you at the end of the retreat too you can take them home with you so I don't know whether any of you have seen um, the movie Inside Out. So it's a sweet animated movie. I'm seeing lots of nodding, which I, I also enjoyed about an 11-year-old girl who moves from her home in Minnesota and comes to foggy old San Francisco where she's challenged with a new school and people who do weird things like putting broccoli on pizzas and stuff. And uh, the movie is about these five characters who live inside her mind, who represent the five basic emotions of joy and sadness, um, fear, anger and disgust. And uh, these are some of the things that are running around in our minds and we may have uh, noticed them in the course of today and the retreat so far. Um, and these... these uh, these emotions inside the mind are all uh, wanting our happiness in different ways, but they don't really uh, know how to do it. So in the film, um, joy and sadness get lost and eventually have to find their way back and, and uh, the, these, these qualities kind of learn to work together. And actually what's very sweet in the film is that they're, they're all somehow very likable characters like we get to befriend all these little entities running around in our mind. So we want to keep befriending these entities and they will still be there. But actually for our meditation practice, we want to hand the controls over to, to somebody different. So in meditation, uh, we want to hand over to this other team of spiritual faculties. So... Uh, we're putting these different different entities in charge. And they've been likened to a team of horses pulling a chariot. Um, the spiritual faculties have the power to pull us to liberation. And if you think of them as a team of five horses, then the front horse would be mindfulness, mindful awareness. And then the horses behind come in pairs. So there's faith and wisdom, which balance each other, and energy and concentration, which balance each other. And when those um, pairs are in balance, it actually makes the work of mindfulness kind of easier. Um, and that's partly why I want to talk about them tonight, because I'm, I'd like to support you to have an, an easeful as an easeful a retreat as possible because when the mind is easeful and relaxed um, then practice is fruitful so I'm going to talk a, a little bit about each one and, and how they work together and I'm actually going to start with faith so they, you know I've, I've explained them as being like five horses pulling a chariot but they also kind of work in, a, in an order as well in a way, so faith, because this is where uh, a lot of us start with something in us that's drawn to look for truth, look for goodness, look for freedom. It's this desire for these things um, that, that brings us uh, 
to a place like this. So maybe just taking a moment to reflect on what it was that brought you here. Um, sometimes, actually, the thing that leads us to faith is, is suffering. It's actually encountering the unsatisfactoriness of life. This is said to give rise to faith. But it sends us, it does that because it sends us looking and our hearts have a, uh, are naturally called to truth and to what's uplifting. So when I was a, a teenager at high school, I was really asking myself lots of questions about life and looking and looking. And I was very fortunate that I stumbled across uh, Chithurst Monastery in England where Kitty Sorrow and Tanisara were practicing. And I went and I heard some talks by Ajahn Sumedho and and there was something in there that really, I thought, this, this man really is talking sense. He knows what he's talking about. And then I had the question in my mind, well, is it just that this is a very unusual man or is there, is there something kind of else going on here? And a few nights later, uh, a monk who was um, very sick at the time uh, came downstairs from his sickbed and gave another talk and it was Kitty Sorrow. And it also made a lot of sense. And I realized, you know, it's not just this one person, Ajahn Sumedho. There's something here in this teaching and this practice that I can really um, begin to put my trust in. So Yong was sharing at lunch today about the first time he, he heard the Dharma, which was um, Tanisara, or the first time he heard Tanisara speaking. Sorry, he'd, he'd already come across the Dharma, but in Chattanooga, and again, some recognition. So even though we may have a whole bunch of questions still going on, there's something that sparked our interest. And uh, maybe that's also in a book, perhaps. So, um, but this, this faith, this call towards the truth, gives us a sense of direction and it energizes our practice. And for some people, the word faith maybe has some unfortunate connotations. So we can also think of it as trust or confidence. So just having enough trust in the teachings to, uh, to start testing them out. And in the chanting that we'll, we'll be doing and that we, we did in one of the blessing chants tonight was a recollection of the, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, which is um, the traditional recitation of things that we put our faith in. And in that, I particularly like um, the way that the Dharma is described as something that's apparent here and now, timeless and encouraging investigation and to be experienced individually by each one of us with wisdom. So this is really um, pointing to the fact that uh, the truth is, is within us, that it's, it's by really looking at our own experience, that we can um, find, find truth, find the key to freedom. But there's also this refuge of Sangha and the recognition that we're, we're not alone. You know, we're supporting one another here on retreat and um, through the quality of Sangha. Sometimes we need to borrow faith from one another or borrow faith from our teachers. There's been times in my life where I, I've found myself um, really struggling and it's been really helpful to be able to lean on other people's faith. Uh, 
when I when I left the monastery, actually, um, you know, it's it's that was a a big shift in my life, and to have Kitisara and Tanisara around um, as an example of people who had uh, carried on practicing diligently after leaving and could kind of inspire me to to do that was uh, very 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 supportive so this this is not um blind faith that i'm talking about but um really giving our hearts to things in this retreat um there's a lot of uh devotional practice and chanting which can be a really beautiful way to um elicit some of these qualities Kitty Sorrow was talking about um, this, this uh, phrase, puja cha pujanianam, celebrating what's worthy of celebration or honoring what's worthy of honor. So as, as, we, as you undertake these practices of bowing and chanting to whatever degree you feel drawn to do so, really find a way of making it yours and honouring um, what matters to you and what's calling you. This is what carries us forward. And as we do that, as, as we connect with our faith, it energises and it gladdens the mind, doesn't it? So faith can give rise to the next one of these spiritual qualities, spiritual faculties, the faculty of energy the energy to apply ourselves to our practice. So what is energy as a spiritual faculty? What kind of energy do we need? And how do we apply it to our practice? So I think here it's uh, very much a, a matter of right effort or balanced effort so not a not an intense form of effort but a gentle perseverance and persistence and one place that um, we want to be quite mindful is because very often the energy that we use to get things done in our ordinary lives is fueled by quite a lot of wanting and aversion you know by wanting things to be different to how they are And if we go about our meditation practice in this way, with wanting and aversion, or what's classically called greed, hatred, and delusion, because we're trying to get certain results from it that we've we've preconceived, then we can miss the fact that actually what we're doing in the way we're going about our meditation is actually energizing the greed, energizing the aversion, energizing the delusion. So another teacher who I very much like, um, Sayadaw Utejaniya, who's a Burmese teacher, he says, if we don't pay attention to how the mind is meditating, it's as if we're letting these, these qualities of greed, hatred, or delusion meditate through the mind. It's like we're, they're doing the meditation for us. <laughs> so 
We want to be really careful about who's in the driving seat of our practice. Ajahn Chah said, it, it, he had a simile where he said it's, it's like a housewife who's so intent on washing the dishes perfectly that she doesn't realize she's doing it with a great big scowl on her face. You know, and we want to be um, attentive to the mind that's actually doing what we're doing. So we want an energy that has mindfulness and wisdom in it. See how all these, it becomes very difficult to talk about some of these lists of qualities one at a time because they all kind of inform one another. So that kind of energy has a sense of direction and it's also very patient. It's just interested in the next step. When I was in my 20s, I'd never been terribly sporty or athletic or anything, but I discovered that I could climb big mountains. I got very into mountain climbing for a few years and climbed some of the high mountains in the Alps and realized that I could do that because you just put one foot in front of the other over and over. And uh, that's kind of how we do our practice. So there's an old story of a of a Zen student who went to his master and said, um, well, how long, how long is it really going to take me to get enlightened? And the master kind of looked at him and said, well, I think maybe, maybe about 10 years should do it. And the student said, well, what if I really, really knuckle down and work hard and redouble my efforts? And the master said, hmm, in that case, 20 years. (laughs) So, you know, more effort sometimes is not really the right kind of effort. Patience. And one area maybe where patience is really useful on retreat is in dealing with tiredness. Because we can think, oh, energy, yes, this is a good quality, but I'm, I'm feeling really tired. And, I mean, perhaps some of you have found yourself as experiencing tiredness today. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, um, you know, many of us are, are just are normally tired. And this is one of the things we bring with us to retreat. And if we have an idea that we really um, need to have a lot of energy... Um, and that we should, you know, we should we should not be tired. We can get very frustrated and disheartened if we find ourselves very tired. But actually, often the the system just needs to rest a bit. If our if our bodies and minds have been going on adrenaline for a long time, you know, what will happen when we stop is that we will tire, be tired, we'll be sleepy, and we can't we can't force the pace of our practice. So if you do find yourself um, really tired, then just bring some interest to that and some gentle persistence and see if you can be tired without being averse to it. And just trust that slowly, slowly your system will recalibrate and, and settle down. So you can, even if you're tired, in the moments where you find yourself awake, you can feed the wholesome qualities of, of mindfulness, friendliness, interest, patience. And that's how we can give our system time to recuperate. 
and we're really lucky that we've got nine whole days of retreat so there's there's time to do that so developing a practice that's easeful and continuous as i said earlier today and the word for energy in Pali is this word virya, which I really like because it's it's the Indo-European word that's related to the Latin word for a hero. So that, that from where we get things like virility and virtue and things. So it, it's a kind of um, there's a there's a heroism to it, but again, it's not the heroism of you know uh, somebody who uh, runs a a hundred meter sprint it's the heroism of somebody who hangs in there for the marathon so um with consistency and perseverance and also courage because being consistent requires courage and there's a quote that i i've heard from maya angelou which i really like about this about courage courage is the most of all the virtues because without, without courage, you can't practice any of the other virtues consistently. You can be or do anything erratically. You can be kind, true, generous, fair, merciful, or just. Any of those things occasionally. But to be that thing time after time demands that you have courage. So... There's some manifestations of this that might not sound like courage, but that come up on retreat. Sometimes even just showing up again when you don't feel like it, being willing to sit through difficulty. You know, this, is, this is all courage that we bring to our practice. And if you think about times that you have stuck through things that are difficult, you know, how does that feel as a sense of self-respect and self-confidence that come from that? We want to build that here. Tanisara mentioned this word atapi this morning in the context of mindfulness as well, which is also a form of um, ardor or energy that we bring. Um, and you can also think of that as enthusiasm or interest. So this energy and enthusiasm and interest um, gives rise to mindful awareness. And mindfulness is the, the next of these qualities. So mindfulness, um, the word sati, means to remember, or not forgetting. Remembering to be present. Remembering to be aware of what's happening as it's happening. And this is a, a non-conceptual sort of awareness. And you don't need to use lots of energy or to try very hard, again, to concentrate or manipulate experience. So, for example, right now, are you aware of your hands? And when did you become aware of your hands? Maybe when I, when I suggested it. <laughs> so that just, just to, to illustrate, you know, did it take much energy to become aware of your hands? Probably not. 
So there's just a, a very, when we, when we direct our attention to something, it's just a very, very subtle shift in the mind that doesn't use much energy. So this is, this is the kind of energy that um, is needed for mindfulness. So even if you don't feel that you have a lot of energy available, actually the amount of energy required to be mindful is very, very small. Which is why it should be possible to, to do this continuously. So it goes along mindfulness with uh, this quality of sampajanya that Tanisara mentioned, which is not forgetting wholesome qualities. We, you'll hear us talking a lot about wholesome and unwholesome, skillful and unskillful. And by that we really mean just things that are conducive to well-being and things that aren't. So mindfulness is remembering to bring attention to our present moment experience and remembering what's wholesome and unwholesome. And this is why it's the, the front horse of these horses. And the other word in Pali for mindfulness is apamado, um, which means uh, non-heedlessness. And it's, it's interesting that it's a negative and I think this is because the, the natural state of an untrained mind is heedlessness. Okay. It's kind of uh, recognized that this is the default mode of the mind is to, to not stay present, but to go scanning around for you know, threats in the future and things out there and reminiscing about the past. So this happens and it will happen. So we do, we do uh, lapse in our mindfulness, we fall into heedlessness and other things take over the driver's seat. So you know, fear, aversion, annoyance, irritation, ill will, craving. We'll, we will find these driving the bus sometimes. They don't just magically disappear because we've decided that we're going to be practicing So because I was thinking of horses and coaches and things and it's this time of year, I was thinking of pumpkins and uh, Cinderella and how she, she got heedless. You know, she forgot what she was doing. She forgot the instructions and her horses turned back into mice. So sometimes our spiritual faculty horses will, uh, <laughs> will find that the, the mice are driving the carriage and it's turned back into a pumpkin and we kind of crash and burn on the, on the way to Nibbana. <laughs> but it's okay. You know, because there's the, this magic of Dharma is that the moment that we realize that that's what's happened, then mindfulness is back in the driving seat again and the whole, the whole show is back on the road. So if you find that you, you've got lost, you're wandering around somewhere else in your mind, then just don't beat yourself up for it. We just don't want to add aversion to what's happening. Just let mindfulness come, come to the front again and stay there. So we begin again and again. And this is very humble work. And I was really moved this morning to hear Kitisaro saying he'd been practicing well, last night. So he's been practicing since 1976 and he's here now to begin again. And to me, that's really inspiring. You know, we, we keep beginning again every moment. 
is new. Every moment is a fresh beginning. So you can, you can always start again. So mindfulness is, is said to be the most important factor for bringing about the increase of wholesome qualities and decreasing unwholesome qualities in the mind. And when we recognize a good quality in the mind, it empowers it. Think about, you know, we recognize gratitude. We recognize faith. We recognize kindness. It strengthens those qualities. So that's why I'm also why I'm talking about these these faculties tonight. Because actually, if you you notice them, just just recognizing that they're there gives them strength. So we strengthen them by recognizing them and by listening to them and kind of receiving their input. And then what happens when we notice or recognize an unwholesome quality in the mind? Say, um, you know, we find ourselves annoyed by maybe the noises that uh, people are making around us in the meditation hall or um, something that comes to mind, a memory that comes to mind from home. And if we if we recognize the moment we recognize that annoyance or anger is in the mind, we don't we don't we're no longer feeding it. We can step out of it. We've got some perspective on it. So as long as we don't then get averse to to whatever it is that's happening in the mind, um, it will start to subside, start to diminish. So it's kind of remarkable how how mindfulness works in this way that. Wholesome qualities will naturally strengthen and unwholesome qualities naturally start to subside. And then what happens as our mindfulness um, becomes more continuous, this is what builds concentration or samadhi, which is the fourth of these five faculties. So this really grows out of a continuity of awareness so samadhi often translated as concentration it really means steadiness or stability of the mind and I think Kittisara will talk more about concentration as the retreat goes on but I think in our practice um, we're really looking for a, a sustained and relaxed kind of awareness and an awareness of, of all the different things that pass through the mind. So we're not trying to get very strongly concentrated on the breath, particularly here. We just want to have a, a steadiness, a real steadiness and ease and peace in the observing mind so we can see all the different things that, that pass through. And this also helps the body to be more at ease. So the body and the mind support each other. If the body's at ease, the mind will be more at ease. And if the mind's more at ease, then the body will be more at ease. And this isn't something that we, we need to try hard to get. It's just what happens when the conditions are in place. So relaxing the mind, relaxing the body gives rise to a, a very wholesome kind of happiness. 
And because of the calming quality of, of steadiness of mind or concentration, this is said to balance the factor of virya or energy. Because if we get too calm, then without any energy or interest, we'll get dull. And if we get too energized, but there's no stability of mind, or even too inspired, but there's no stability of mind, then this will turn into agitation. So mindfulness will balance these qualities. And it can be very helpful to have an anchor to uh, establish our awareness, around, for our awareness to help develop the stability of mind. And this is why we've been and will be using the breath. And breathing itself is just soothing and nourishing for the nervous system. So a lot of us have this question, like, I really, I, I want to develop more stability of mind and how am I going to do this? And, you know, yes, I can keep bringing my mind back to the breath, but that's, you know... Take, it takes time, it's difficult, it's difficult to do that. So just to share uh, what I've discovered in that regard is it's not rocket science, but a happy mind is one that wanders less. Yeah. So as we develop continuity of mindfulness, we're also developing a continuity of friendliness in the mind. So Tanissa spoke this morning about um, mindfulness being free from, um, free from longing and free from, um, free from aversion. So it's a non-judgmental, friendly state of, uh, state of mind, one that's free from longing and free from regret. And when those kind of qualities are absent from the mind, then the awareness that's left behind is essentially uh, warm and friendly. It has a quality of warmth and friendliness in it. And this is very different from having to like what's happening in our experience. So it may be that we actually, you know, there are things happening maybe physically, emotionally, mentally that, that we don't like. Sometimes what's arising in the mind due to the causes and conditions may be a lot of sadness or concern or um, you know, uh, regret over the state of the world. But even if those sorts of things are happening in the mind, can we, can we meet them with a degree of friendliness and non-judgment? towards that because if we do and there's warmth and friendliness in the mind the mind will be more happy and it, it really took me years to get this in my practice even though in the sort of basic instructions for mindfulness of breathing that the Buddha gave he talks about gladdening the mind but um, we can be so anxious to to try to figure things out and to get things yeah. And actually, I've discovered that it's it's more useful to be practicing friendliness and warm-heartedness than trying to achieve or get anything at all, or to understand. So this is this is just a tip. If you want your mind to settle down, you know, um, let it develop a quality of friendliness. 
because friendliness makes the mind happy. And there's a, a, a sequence that, that comes over and over again in the, the suttas where the Buddha says that um, the mind that is in the mind that's glad, so that we don't have to do anything to it, but the mind that's glad will, will start to experience rapture. And when the mind is rapturous, it starts to experience... So rapture is kind of like a physical, a physical sense of happiness as well. And uh, when the mind is rapturous, it will become tranquil. And the tranquil mind will become concentrated. And the concentrated mind will see clearly. And eventually, this leads us all the way to liberation. So this, this is just a natural process of the mind settling down, that the, the happy mind will become calm, become concentrated more easily. And... This stability of mind gives rise to wisdom. Wisdom is when the mind uh, is it's almost like a, a magnifying glass that can see things w- with more clarity. <clears throat> so the wisdom faculty, the last of these qualities, it uh, involves having a right understanding and a, a Dharma view a view that's in alignment with what is. Sometimes it's uh, it's spoken about in terms of three different kinds of wisdom that develop sort of from one another. So the the first kind of wisdom is the wisdom that we get from hearing things, hearing teachings or hearing hearing. wise instruction or uh, descriptions of how it is. We listen to teachings from people that we trust or teachings that have a ring of truth to them for us. And then the second level of wisdom comes when we actually reflect on those and measure our own experience. And then the third, third level of wisdom is when we actually realize and see the truth of them directly for ourselves. So wisdom is something like faith that we can also borrow at times from from others. And then we test it, we we measure it against our own experience, and then gradually we come to see directly what's true and what's not true. This is a... uh, It happens due to causes and effects. And this is, this is maybe the most important, one of the most important threads of, of the Dharma view to understand that everything that's happening happens with the law of cause and effect and that it's not personal. So all these, these things that are unfolding in our minds, in our experience, they're all happening due to cause and effect. And we, we contend a conventional experience or our, our habit is to take it all to be me and the dharma view says no this is this is just nature unfolding and this is again is something that i'm sure we'll explore more as the retreat unfolds but it can be really helpful from right right from the beginning to remember this because otherwise what happens is that we find you know we find ourselves with a grumpy mind 
and then we make it into a big problem. I am such a grumpy, horrible person and uh, I'm, I'm a bad meditator and I'm having a terrible retreat and we proliferate around this and we make it into a personal problem. Whereas actually all minds under these conditions get grumpy, all minds under these conditions get stressed, all minds under these conditions get worried. So if we can just see these, all the, take an interest in what's happening in the mind as, as, as a natural process rather than making it about me and something I have to judge, it, judge myself for. Because often a lot of what we see in the mind is not, not very good news. And so if we take it all as being my bad news, it can be quite just depressing. But actually, I bet, you know, every, everything that's going on in our mind, somebody else's mind is having something very similar going on. So um, to not take that personally... So even these these five faculties I'm speaking about, they're also um, impersonal, in the sense that they're they're universal, just like these these five emotions I was speaking about in, in Inside Out. These five faculties are also impersonal. So you don't even have to become a wise person. You just need to let wisdom do its work in you. So I remember I was saying that mindfulness causes wholesome qualities to increase and unwholesome qualities to diminish. And that really is, is wisdom doing its work. You know, it's wisdom recognizes, oh, this is conducive to well-being and this isn't. And automatically you know, it starts to disengage, disempower the thing that's not conducive and empower the thing that's conducive. So wisdom will grow just from your watching of what's happening. And how do you know that wisdom's, wisdom's growing? You know, maybe because you see some situation where you may be in the past used to suffer and you didn't suffer. So many of you who are, you know, have been practicing for some time, you know, this is maybe what keeps the practice going. You really see that it's working. Where there was formerly suffering, there's no suffering. So maybe, for example, you, you no longer suffer as much as you did when the body doesn't do what you want it to do. Or you, you find yourself less quick to anger in some situations. And you may f- even notice, you know, from day to day on the retreat, maybe, for example, that the sounds around you that were really bothering you in the beginning, actually, you've, you've come to a point of much more equanimity with them. You've realized that it's not, it's not worth uh, getting stirred up about it. So it's like the mind itself knows how to, to meet situations without suffering. It learns how to, to meet situations without um, adding suffering to them. So as you notice this, as, as wisdom grows, then faith grows as well. So our faith, um, rather than being borrowed, becomes confirmed faith, faith that uh, it's actually verified by our own experience. So faith and wisdom balance one another. Blind faith gives way to wisdom, and then wisdom deepens faith again.
So these are the, the five faculties that make up the meditating mind. And faith gives us energy and direction. And then energy keeps us applying the mind to the practice. And mindfulness oversees the, the development of wholesome qualities and it unsticks us from the unwholesome ones. And then the continuity of our mindfulness creates steadiness or stability. And with that steadiness and stability, then wisdom can see clearly what's happening. And when the mind really sees clearly what's happening, it starts to let go and to find its way to peace. So Tanisara talked this morning very beautifully about trusting the power of the path to lead us onwards and to purify the heart, purify the heart-mind from unwholesome qualities. And this is, this is how it happens. It's all, it's all down to cause and effect. So we all have different propensities in terms of these, these faculties. Some people are very strong in faith, um, but maybe lacking in wisdom. Some people are, are strong in the wisdom faculty, but find faith difficult. Some of us have a lot of energy. Maybe some of us have, have a natural ability of the mind to concentrate. And so you know, different, different faculties are stronger in different individuals and different faculties are stronger in us at different times, but they're all present uh, in all of us and they just need a, a little assistance and appreciation to emerge. And the retreat conditions are very supportive for that. And also the, the energy of the group practice is very supportive too because these qualities are being, they're in the field, they're being cultivated by all of us. And the beauty of it is, is that as one of them strengthens, the other ones strengthen along with it too. So it's like they, they have to grow to, to catch up. So that's what we're, we're doing this week, is we're growing these, strengthening these spiritual faculties and so that they can, they can take care of the practice for us. So we can kind of, step out of the picture and just trust that uh, the mind when we when we provide the right conditions when we um, attentive and aware with our wholesome intentions that uh, the mind will be working for us uh, and our practice can just start to build its own momentum So I just want to end with a, another a short simile from Ajahn Chah that I like. <laughs> so it's called Turtle. Looking for peace is like looking for a turtle with a moustache. You won't be able to find it. But when your heart is ready... It will come and look for you. So let's practice preparing our hearts.
So maybe just take a moment to sit together in silence. And trusting that anything that's uh, been useful to you will have imprinted itself on the tape recorder of your mind and the rest can just vanish away. Thank you for your attention. And uh, we have a walking period again now for half an hour. And then 